welcome to this edition of DCS Talks, a podcast production of the Tennessee Department of Children's Services. The intention of DCS Talks is to promote dialogue among child welfare professionals, foster parents, and the entire community about ways to prevent child abuse and neglect. Today's guest is Jennifer Drake Croft. She is a project director in the Infant and Early Childhood Mental Health Technical Assistance Center at Georgetown University. She serves as a reflective supervisor and endorsement exam handler at the Association of Infant Mental Health in Tennessee. She is an adjunct professor at the University of Tennessee, and when I first met Ms. Draycroft, she served as the Director of Child Well-Being at the Tennessee Commission of Children and Youth. She led an extremely successful campaign to support local, state, and national response and knowledge mobilization to prevent adverse childhood experiences and promote resilience. Thank you so much for joining us today, Jennifer. Thank you for having me. I know you and I swim in the waters of adverse childhood experiences and child development, but for our listeners, could you tell us a little bit about what I mean by adverse childhood experiences or ACEs? Yeah, or ACEs. Yeah, you'll often hear them used um, by that acronym. So adverse childhood experiences are a set of experiences that have been studied um, that contribute to our leading disease, social problems, and mental health challenges. So back in the mid-90s, you had Kaiser Permanente and the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention look at certain types of experiences provide those in a questionnaire to patients. They actually distributed this questionnaire to 17,000 people. And then they noticed incredibly strong correlations between your number of ACEs. So you literally, you know, there there are these different categories. You get a yes or no, a check mark or not a check mark for each one of the different experiences you had. And the more you had, the more likely you were to, you know, suffer with one of our nine out of 10 leading diseases or to suffer, suffer with mental health challenges or those kinds of things. Mm-hmm. So some examples of adverse childhood experiences are things like, you know, having a parent incarcerated, experiencing physical or sexual abuse, Uh, having a parent or caregiver abuse substances, those kinds of things. And so the more of those varied experiences that you had, the more it shapes your lifelong health. And that's why Serena and I are so passionate about the earliest years of life in particular, because these are the years, this this prenatal to three period are the years where our brain is developing very, very rapidly rapidly. And where these experiences have the most profound effect. And so there is a great quote um, that even Bill Gates has said that the first two months of your life have so much to do with how the next 80 turn out, right? Meaning that those experiences you have for better or for worse in your early years really shape all learning behavior and health because of the rapid brain development that's taking place. You know, this is why we see ACEs have such an impact on our outcomes is because they are literally being woven into our developing brains and bodies. Serena mentioned resilience. So I do want to also say that this does not mean 
that you wouldn't have the opportunity to recover um, or heal from adverse childhood experiences. We know we can do that. Um, And infant mental health and supporting infant mental health is one of those pathways to support early mitigation or prevention of adverse childhood experiences. There are so many fields of science that are drawing conclusions about early childhood, about infant development, and why it's important to set children up as early as possible for success. So perhaps you could share some of what's going on developmentally in the brains and nervous systems of infants and or young children under the age of five. In the first few years of life, 85% of brain volume is established, which is why we see um, these three-year-old kids that have almost adult-sized heads on their little bodies, right? <laughs> so much brain building happening during the Now, we know that the brain is not done developing until our mid-20s, right? So what's happening in between there? We can compare it to the building of a building or the building of a house. Now, when you're seeing all of these new houses or apartment buildings being constructed around you, the first thing that's going to happen is that they're going to lay the foundation and the foundation and how well it's laid, even though it's the one of the simplest parts of the structure, has so much to do with the potential and the functioning of that building. And so we can think about the earliest years of life as laying the foundation for, as I said a little earlier, all future learning behavior and development, right? Our functioning, our potential across our lifespan. And if we have cracks in the foundation or we don't have a well-laid foundation, it's going to show up in other ways. So we think about how when a a house has a poor foundation, you're watching HGTV, that you see cracks in the drywall, you see doors that won't shut, you know, you may see leaks, um, those kinds of things that let you know that something's going on underneath. And yet, do we just give up and move our house? No, we jack up the house, (laughs) fix the foundation. And similarly, we can do that with people, right? That's why we have therapy. That's why we have evidence-based interventions, or in other words, you know, not using, you know, Serena mentioned where we swim in the water all the time. Um, otherwise known as stuff that we've studied that works for people, right? To help them feel, right? Um, so again, following the metaphor of building a house and how it's so similar to building a brain, you also see that the framing goes up. And so when we look at the volume of the house, it's there, right? And then it takes several more months for it, if if not longer, for the rest of it to get finished out. So even though we're like, wow, I see a house there, what's going on? Well, the plumbing's going in, the drywall's going in, the electricity is going in, the fi- fixtures are going in. <laughs> and in a similar way with our brains, we are building that volume quickly, And then we are seeing more refinement happen, fine tuning, integration, those kinds of things, which takes us all the way into our 20s when our prefrontal cortex or the part of our brain that helps us with impulse control, understanding consequences, those kinds of things, that is when that finishes up. But it really is a refinement process. It's not adding to the volume of the brain. It is fine tuning the way the brain operates similar to a house. 
So Jennifer, you were talking about all the activity that goes into the brain development of of childhood, uh, but especially in early childhood. So um, this is kind of a two-part question. Tell us some of the things that are super beneficial to promote that healthy, healthy development in early childhood. Um, But tell us about some things um, that can... Uh, potentially harm and and even disrupt some of that development that's happening in early childhood. Yeah, absolutely. And if you don't mind, I'll go ahead and just define infant and early childhood mental health because it is one of those terms where people are like, what? You know, I just, (laughs) um, first of all, unfortunately in our country, a lot of times we hear mental health and we think mental illness and that's not the case. We all have mental health, you know, um, and whether it's, you know, poor or, you know, healthy, um, de- depends on what's going on in our lives. And that is so true for infants and toddlers as well. Infants and toddlers have mental health. So we are not talking about babies on the couch, you know, where we're giving them therapy, <laughs> right? That we are, uh, we are often talking about if we, if we see challenges with children, um, we are talking about interventions with them and their caregiver to improve outcomes for them. But we'll get into that a little bit That's later. Right. But I just wanted to sh- to to sort of spell that out because that is not a very accessible term, in my opinion. Oh, absolutely. <laughs> it's so, cutting edge. Yeah, so really. in these earliest, these earliest years, essentially, like, we are learning all about our world. We are learning our language. We are learning about gravity. We are learning, we are learning about our own emotions and the emotions of others all kinds of things are going on. And so similar to adults, infant mental health refers to the ability for a baby or toddler to appropriately, we have to talk about developmental appropriateness here, Mm -hmm. uh, to appropriately be able to name their own feelings, manage some of their own feelings, Mm -hmm. understand the feelings of others and begin to develop empathy and the ability for babies and toddlers to form close relationships with other people. Okay. Those are the elements of what infant and early childhood mental health is. And so how do we build that? We build that through something called early relational health, right? Mm-hmm. And it means having those adults in our lives who form healthy relationships with us. So I'm going to you know, make it again, take it a step back and liken it to a game of tennis or a game of ping pong where you've got a baby who from the moment they are born, they are serving, right? They are serving the ball saying, Hey, you know, meet my need here or what's going on here, right? They're just serving the ball. And the adult's job is to return that serve and keep the game going, this back and forth interaction. And so think about bringing home a a literal newborn and they are crying and you as a new caregiver are figuring out why are they crying, right? So they've served the cry. You're trying to return the serve and meet their needs. Things like, oh my goodness, is this baby hungry? Are they sleepy? Do they need to be swaddled? Do they need a diaper change? You know, you're going through the list and you're going to get it wrong a lot of the time at the beginning. (laughs) 
because, you know, all of the cries in the beginning sound pretty undifferentiated. They sound the same. Yeah. Um, but what that baby is learning in those moments is a lot. And we do this without really thinking about it. It's very second nature to, to healthy adults and even healthy older children to try to meet the needs of infants and toddlers. Yeah. But there's a lot of brain building that goes into every single one of those returns from those serves. So you got a, a newborn, you're returning the serve and you you're saying, oh, okay, not hungry. Oh, okay. Not <laughs> diapers fine. Um, okay. They just needed to be walked. You know, they needed their little nervous system. They needed my help to calm their nervous system. And that happens through this kind of rhythmic rocking that we naturally do. And again, we, we often talk to our infants, which again, is a very important part of brain building because okay. infants are learning language long before they can speak. And so we may pick up a baby and we may say, oh, you just needed to be held. You just needed to be rocked or bounced, you know, and you know, my daughter's name is Holden. So I'd be like my little Holden baby, you know, and those kinds <laughs> of and yeah. even the mother ease, which is the way in which that kind of sing-song voice that not just mothers do, men do, all people do. Yeah. That is a natural biological thing that we do that we don't think about that helps babies learn language, right? So I'm sitting there and I'm like, yes, maybe another time she was actually hungry. And so I'll say, you were hangry. Oh my goodness, you were <laughs> angry at the same time and your tummy probably was growling and you were frustrated. And so what is she learning in all of that? Right? Well, first of all, she is learning. She can trust me, right? If I'm meeting her needs more often than not, then she can relax and know and not be preoccupied right. that she's going to be safe and her needs are going to be met. Right. Which frees her up to do other learning when she feels safe. Yeah. Next thing that she's learning from that interaction is, oh, this delicious stuff that is making me feel better. It's called milk, right? That's the word for it. Um, my internal state, my emotion is hanger, right? right. <laughs> Frustration, right? And, you know, my name is Holden. And yeah. you know, all of these things that we're learning about our world, they come in the context of relationships. Yeah. And in infant and early childhood mental health, we often say there's no such thing as just a baby, right? Mm -hmm. Babies cannot survive and are wholly dependent on the adults in their lives, yeah. not just to be fed and um, to be, you know, have their diapers changed, but to acquire language, to understand their feelings, to learn to understand the feelings of others, all kinds of things. You, our brain is wiring to set us up for success in the world. Yeah. So with that, Serena's like, what are the good things and what are the not so tough things? I feel like I need to back up just a minute and say, you know, I talked in infant early childhood mental health about managing our own feelings, our own big, big emotions. And I want to, to say that a three-year-old <laughs> is not going to be like, 
you really frustrated me and this is why, but, and then I took 10 deep breaths and I felt better. Right. right. And <laughs> they might be able to say you made me mad. Right. And that is good, but they're not going to have like the sophistication that an adult yeah, is going to sure. have. Even a teenager doesn't have yeah. the sophistication. Even a 40 year old at times. Yeah. <laughs> we are stressed out, right? right. Um, we lose our words and our healthy ways of communicating. Yeah. yeah. What you're doing is we're trying to help that baby, like when they're four, you know, or yeah. three, even, say mad, I'm mad instead of hit. Right. And then as they get older to understand the difference between mad, basic and frustrated, you know, or irritated or, oh goodness, in terms of sad, you know, grieving these kinds of things. And we know that when we have language and when we have somebody to help us with our own nervous systems calm down that we begin to learn that for ourselves and it helps us grow to be a healthy adult. All right. So lots and lots of brain building happening through, you know, optimally these, these strong, stable, you know, nurturing relationships that engage in this demanding game of serve and return. If there are parents on the line, especially parents of of small children, I want to also say, don't worry about getting it right all the time. It is not about being a perfect parent. (laughs) And it's impossible to be a perfect parent. It is about, you know, you meeting your child's serves more frequently than not, yeah, you know, the consistency. Yeah. That's exactly right. So what causes disruption in that healthy brain development? So we're talking about all the things that help for strong brain architecture, strong, laying a strong foundation. Now we can talk about those things that really put cracks in the foundation and lead to weaker brain development in terms of the functioning that we would consider healthy. Because again, our brains and bodies job is to help us survive in the world in which we find ourselves be born, right? So if you are find yourself being born into a situation where your adult is unpredictable, right? Like you, you're not always getting your bottle. You're not always getting picked up, you know, either they're not responding or they're screaming at you or something like that, or, or you're essentially where you're not getting that safe, stable, nurturing relationship um, with your primary caregivers and primary caregivers. I mean, if we think about early childhood educators, my child was with an early childhood educator for as many hours a week as I was working, which was actually plus that, right? So was in many respects, one of her primary caregivers, and I depended on them to help um, build her brain architecture. Yeah. When we don't have that, we are also learning and wiring in a different way. We are learning that I can't count on these people. I can't trust that I'm safe. There's more attention being paid to my safety and keeping myself okay. And there's not a whole heck of a lot of attention being paid to, ooh, I'm going to go explore this and touch this and limits and do all the things that babies that are developmentally healthy are doing, right? Because even the testing limits and the no, you know, and 
and the questioning why, 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 all of those things <laughs> are, um, they're developmental processes that help our children, even though sometimes they wear us out, that help <laughs> learn and build that strong brain architecture, but you're not getting, you're, you're not going to see a toddler or an infant seeking those kinds of things when they're worried about their own safety. Okay. Absolutely. And so the, the sorts of things that are not being developed, we talked about in that interaction that I had with Holden when she was a baby. If, for instance, that I just gave her a bottle, suck it in her mouth and walked away, what is she missing? All the things I listed, yeah. she's missing. This is a bottle. This is milk. Your name's Holden. You know, you're, yeah. you're feeling frustrated. You're uncomfortable, right? This is, this is making you feel better. All the words through the back and forth interaction that baby's not getting exposed to. And it has consequence, right? Because... <laughs> If you are not exposed to language, then you're not going to acquire language. If you're not exposed to an adult that's helping you with your underdeveloped or your developing nervous system to learn how to calm down or to learn how to share or to know it's going to be okay, then you're not going to develop that capacity very well on your own. And guess what? That's adaptive right? If you're born into a world like that, your brain wants to wire in such a way that it is looking for danger and looking to protect you a lot, right? It is looking for basic needs to get met. It doesn't care what the word for milk is, right? Mm -hmm. um, it is getting your nervous system so that it is frequently able to react um, to scary situations. We call it fight light or freeze. Yeah. And so we see that these, these babies and toddlers are a lot more sensitive to novel or, or unique things or things that they perceive as danger. Their heart rate stays elevated longer. Um, all kinds of biological things are in play for that child to keep themselves safe, right? This is what our body does to help us adapt and, and stay alive. Unfortunately, we live in a society where that actually is maladaptive in places like school, right? So, or in childcare or in the workforce as an adult, right? <laughs> um, that when we are not building these skills to manage our feelings, when we're not building our skills to problem solve, right? And learn, then it's going to come out in ways that we often label behavior challenges. Mm -hmm. I feel the need to give yet another contextual piece here because yeah. God, parenting and raising kids is a very activating subject because we all want to do it well, right? Yeah, and it's hard. Yeah. And it's hard, right? And so I want to also say that there may be other developmental reasons why a child is having behavior issues. So they may have sensitivities, like, uh, what am I trying to say? Yeah, sensory sensory um, yeah, processing. Yeah. yeah. Sensory processing challenges. Thank you, Serena. <laughs> yeah. They may have a learning disability that is not from trauma. Right. So we're not saying that when we see a, every child that has like challenging and out of the ordinary challenging behaviors, I should say that they've all been traumatized. We are not saying that. Yeah. What we're saying is that for many children, not all, that those challenging, traumatic, or neglectful, which is also traumatic, early experiences can lead to these behaviors 
that don't serve them well in any other setting. So you can think of, I don't know, little, I don't know, Timothy, let's name him. And maybe he did not get a lot of response from his primary caregiver early on in life. And he has a vocabulary size of 300 words, all right, which would sound like a lot, but it's really not a lot. You know, at the age of five, our kids know lots, lots and lots of words if they've been spoken to since infancy with this regular back and forth interaction. And so Timothy comes to school first day of kindergarten, he is hyper vigilant, right? Because remember (laughs) his brain is looking out for danger and this is a new situation with new people. Right. And Timothy hasn't learned necessarily how to, he's not at a developmentally appropriate place of calming himself down when maybe somebody takes a toy from him or maybe somebody got the toy he wanted to before him. Mm -hmm. And so instead of having the words to go to a teacher or to say, hey, can I please play with that first? He's screaming and hitting, right? Right. And then I think the adults in the room are thinking when they see little Timothy screaming and hitting because, you know, a toy's been taken away. Well, they think he's bad. And then how does that color every other interaction with Timothy moving forward? Yeah. Because there's a lack of understanding, right? That Timothy is developmentally behind in terms of what we call healthy development. And he's too developed in his ability to keep himself safe and to survive. So let's think of another kid. Let's say Jeremiah, right? Mm -hmm. Jeremiah um, has had a lot of interactions with an adult that said, Hey buddy, it is not okay to hit when we're frustrated. Yeah. We need to use our words and here are some words we can use. And buddy, Jeremiah does not get it right all the time. I'm not saying that, but Jeremiah is much more practiced at saying, Hey, Miss Carlisle, Timothy hit me and he didn't, he, I didn't finish my turn. Right. And that changes the way that that situation is read and reacted to. Yeah. Imagine Miss Carlisle thinks Timothy's bad and she comes up in his space and she's like, this is not okay. And starts talking to him in a stern voice. Well, Timothy is going further into fight, flight, freeze. He's not learning from that situation and he is um, possibly escalating more or completely shutting down. Right. And then we see Timothy's become first graders, fifth graders, high schoolers and adults that have never had anybody understand or help remediate that early trauma. And we see the Timothy's of the world start to pick up substances or other, they engage in other unhealthy coping skills. We see that their bodies have been developed for fight, flight, freeze. And so they're maybe have a hairpin trigger and they are not in their thinking brain when they get frustrated. Right. And we see that they are overreacting to things or are completely numbing out and disassociating. And then we can understand how a little Timothy, five years old, becomes a 25-year-old Timothy who was coping with alcohol with with his incredible stress, lifetime of stress, and that's doing damage to his body. And that Timothy lost his cool at a bar because he was inebriated and he already doesn't have great, uh, a great ability to 
engage in his executive functioning skills that would help him make good choices, right? And he punches somebody in the face and, you know, gets arrested and put in jail. We can see that trajectory. Luckily, and we're talking about this today in this podcast, that there are lots of opportunities for repair along the way, and it doesn't have to be that way. Yeah, lots and lots. And we also talk about intergenerational parenting a lot. And and I'm just thinking, and when Timothy has a child, unless there have been some interventions or mitigation, then he's he could potentially pass on some of the things he experienced when he was growing up. That's exactly right. We well, we parent how we've been parented for better or for worse most yeah. of the time. Right. And for those of us who didn't have the best childhood, there is opportunity to learn those skills and to repair and to parent differently. But it does take access to resources, you know what I mean? And interventions that can change the way that we relate to our infants and toddlers. One of my favorite researchers, Dr. Dan Siegel, often says that if you have not healed from your past traumas, no matter how much you don't want to, they're going to come out sideways in your parenting with your own kids. Um, and again, it is a progress, not perfection. Right. Absolutely. For, for everyone. A hundred percent, Serena. Yes, we cannot forget that. Yeah, <laughs> you, can, you can be healed from your trauma and still stuff slips out the still. side. Yeah. Interaction that is safe, stable, and nurturing is is a way to promote healthy infant mental health and ongoing mental health. Uh, You mentioned Dan Siegel. I know he's authored several books. Could you maybe, if someone is interested, maybe offer a few resources that you have found helpful that they could Google or search? Well, if you're a real nerd, they're at the Harvard Center on the Developing Child. You just Google that, it'll come up. And the beautiful thing about Harvard Center on the Developing Child is they can go as as shallow or as deep as you want to go. They have little videos. They have short little one-pagers about all kinds, all of this and more. But also if you wanted to take a deep dive into neglect or how brain development happens or the influence of place on development, Mm -hmm. they also have working papers and are leading the research in these areas. So I recommend that. And I also, I really do recommend a lot of Dan Siegel's, Dr. Dan Siegel's and Tina Payne Bryson's books to parents, especially if you've experienced your own trauma, it is incredibly helpful and eye-opening. So things like the whole brain child, you know, the whole brain child is a little bit more um, accessible. The yes brain for parents of teenagers, there's a book called Brainstorm. And it's not just written by this researcher, it's written by this parent educator. So it's a little bit more accessible. There's another book called Parenting. It's by Dan Siegel called Parenting from the Inside Out. It's a little bit of a tougher read, but boy, it's rich, rich, rich with insight and understanding the science behind what we're talking about today. Thank you again. And thank you for being on this cutting edge science and sharing it with our listeners. Thank you, listener, for your interest about child welfare. Please join DCS Talks again to hear other subject matter experts discuss ways to advocate for children and build resilient communities.